Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Tuesday, November 17th. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Here's how we're making you smarter today. Big tech's post-election woes. Plus, the lack of live sports isn't the real reason cable is dying. First, though, a vaccine wake-up call is today's one big thing. Yesterday, the biotech company Moderna announced their coronavirus vaccine was nearly 95 percent effective at preventing illness. That's during its preliminary testing. And of course, this comes a week after Pfizer announced a similarly successful vaccine. Axios' healthcare editor, Sam Baker, is here to give us a reality check on what these announcements actually mean. Sam, what's the most promising thing to you about yesterday's announcement from Moderna? Well, I think there are two things. The first is the very close to 95 percent effectiveness rate. And then for that to be the second vaccine, as you mentioned, behind the Pfizer vaccine with 90 percent or better efficacy. I mean, these are both just press releases so far. We'll have to take a closer look at those numbers. But assuming that they hold up, now we're talking about two really effective products. Having two of them will mean that we can get more doses of them. So it's just sort of starting to shape up like, yeah, we're really going to be able to attack this thing with vaccines. We also have an exclusive Axios Ipsos poll that says 61% of Americans would take a first-generation vaccine. I wonder how our attitude as a country is maybe changing when it comes to thinking about taking a vaccine. You know, one thing that's been really consistent in this poll, we've asked, do you want it right away or do you want to wait and see if it's effective? And the clear, clear, clear answer, no matter how we ask the question, is people are willing to give it a little bit of time to make sure that it is, first of all, safe, and then also that it's effective. So when you, you know, ask people, assume it's 90% effective, yeah, people are into that. So can we talk about how people would eventually get this vaccine? And I know one of the possible issues is how fast the distribution process is going to move. On yesterday's Axios Recap podcast, host Dan Primack spoke to Tall Zacks, the chief medical officer at Moderna, and he actually seemed pretty confident in their distribution plans. We've been investing in manufacturing significantly. We've been expanding that, and we've been working with partners who know what they're doing. We've been sharing our data as we go along with the right government agencies, and all of that gives me the confidence that indeed we'll be able to supply large amounts of this vaccine. Realistically, Sam, what are we thinking about timeline and distribution here? Well, so the next thing that has to happen is both of these companies, Pfizer and Moderna, have to actually submit a filing to the FDA. And presumably they will say yes. And then we'll have an emergency use authorization, most likely. And then we can really get underway with distribution. You're probably looking at late spring into next summer before the general public starts to get access to the vaccine. You said to me last week, there's light at the end of the tunnel. I wonder how you feel now knowing we have at least two vaccines that seem very promising. Yeah, I think the light at the end of the tunnel got brighter. And I hate to be a downer here because it's really good news. But I think it's important to remember that we don't have a vaccine yet. We have really strong belief that we are going to have a couple vaccines and that they're going to work really well. So I just would caution people to remember that this is light at the end of the tunnel, but we are not at the end of the tunnel yet. Sam Baker is Axios' healthcare editor. Thanks, Sam. We'll be back in 15 seconds with the post-election disinformation battle. Welcome back to Axios Today. 
As President Trump and his supporters continue to spread false information about the election results, social media companies have again had to adapt on the fly. And today, the CEOs of Facebook and Twitter are facing Senate questioning that will very likely turn to how they plan to handle the continuous spread of misinformation. Sarah Fisher's Axios' media reporter. Sarah, why didn't these platforms have a plan to deal with the post-election aftermath that we've been seeing? Well, I guess the easiest answer, Nyla, is they didn't see it coming. They had done so much to plan for what was going to happen leading up to the election and during the election, but I don't think they recognized that there would be so much misinformation coming afterwards, really driven by the president and some of his allies that were trying to delegitimize the results. I know you spoke to a YouTube spokesperson who told you that when you're looking at the sort of the top 10 most popular videos about the election, most of them came from trusted news organizations, but still more than 10 percent were from bad sources. So isn't the issue that there are corners of platforms where false information is flourishing? That's absolutely right, Nyla. And that's the biggest issue. You have platforms like Google and Facebook, and they're saying, look, we're 91% effective. We're 99% effective. And it's like, all right, well, if you reach billions of people, that 1% is actually massively important. The people who are seeing it are becoming radicalized, and it's still a problem. And so they're trying to work through that. And I imagine this is going to be sort of the focal point of today's hearing. It's not likely we're going to hear any solutions offered by senators today on this front, right? No, but I think realistically, there is a good conversation that's being had both between regulators and some of the tech companies around how do we hold tech companies accountable for how misinformation spreads. I think everyone understands that it's really hard. You're putting tech platforms in a really untenable position to ask them to remove speech. But we can ask them to be more accountable for how far it goes. This is probably a good time to disclose to our audience, Sarah, that Facebook is one of our sponsors here on the podcast. They have no editorial input in anything that goes into the journalism that I do or that you do. Sarah Fisher covers media for Axios. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you, Nyla. There are two problems with sports and cable TV right now. The lack of live sports are causing even more people to cut the cord. But Axios' sports editor Kendall Baker says there's an even bigger problem looming for traditional sports media companies. Cable TV dying is like the surface-level story that you see kind of the iceberg above the water. You have the way in which sports fans access content is changing, but more importantly, what content they want to access is also changing. And so it's not only changing your distribution method, it's changing what you're distributing. And I think sports networks and sports media companies that understand that the way in which a 15-year-old follows sports is not watching Monday Night Football and then watching the post-game show and then watching sports Center later that night. They're watching completely different things. They're on completely different platforms. So, Kendall, are you talking about companies like Twitch? Is that the future? Oh, for sure. And I think what you're seeing with those platforms and Twitch is a great example, not only that they're, you know, streaming platforms, but also just kind of like how they're built with a lot of engagement kind of built in where you're not just watching a broadcast. Maybe you're talking to that person that's broadcasting what you're watching. They're kind of this new way of engaging a viewer and kind of changing that relationship between broadcast and viewer to be more kind of participatory. Kendall Baker is Axios' sports editor. Thanks, Kendall. Thank you. 
Here's another thing you don't need cable for. Watching the National Zoo's baby panda on its live panda cam. He's now 12 weeks old, about to grow teeth and get a name. The zoo and its Chinese partners have come up with four names and we get to choose which one he gets. So let's go through the list. First, there's... Fu Zai. That's Mandarin for prosperous boy. Then... Xiao Qi Ji. Which means little miracle. Xing Fu. That's option number three, and it means happy and prosperous. And last but not least, and the one I'm guessing will be the audience favorite, is the Mandarin nickname for little boy. Zai Zai. You can cast one vote per day from now until this Friday. I'll tweet out a link to the contest. And that's all we've got for you today. We also always love feedback. And you can email us at podcasts at axios.com or find me on Twitter at Nyla Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And we'll see you back here tomorrow morning.